So in case you missed it, I wrote a book, <laughs> like a full-blown cover-to-back book, Confessions of a Crappy Christian. The book is real-life talk about the things Christians aren't sure they're supposed to say. I dive into things like mental health, being a fiery woman from within the church, friendship breakups, and more from the perspective of my life and how God has moved. So you can find out more and pre-order if you would like at crappychristianco.com slash book. Pre-orders matter a lot in the book world, so that would really mean the world. Welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a Crabby Christian, a Misfit Media Network production. I am your host and resident crappy Christian, Blake, and every week I get to have the coolest conversations with incredible people about all the things most Christians are still not sure we're allowed to talk about. So if you've been looking for a place to land with all your crap and for someone to just be honest about what it looks like to walk through this Christian life, well, you've come to the right place. Pull up a seat, pop in your headphones and tune out your kids and come hang out with me and a guest for the authentic conversations that you have been looking for. Ketchy, welcome to Confessions of a Crappy Christian. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to have this conversation. You have lived quite the life. <laughs> Needless to say, everything from plane crash to America's Got Talent, being involved in a ton of organizations and advocacy, you have a story to tell and you have a book that just came out. Congratulations. Yes. Your book you so baby much. is out in the world more than my scars. <laughs> that was just a couple of weeks ago when we mm-hmm. were recording. So tell us a little bit just about kind of let's go like pre plane crash. Tell me a little bit about your life before kind of everything changed. I grew up in Nigeria. I was born there. I am Nigerian. And my childhood was very happy, very um, carefree. I was born to two wonderful parents and just kind of, you know, they focused on, on giving me a very wholesome childhood, one that was very um, involved or rather revolved around family, you know, cousins, like the extended family. Mm-hmm. So since I was an only child for a while until I was 11, you know, having my cousins and my other family members around me was very like just comforting. Yeah. But I still enjoyed, you know, being an only child. I enjoyed having my parents full attention. I enjoyed them doting on me. I was very independent-ish already just growing up. So I was okay with my own company. But um, my sister was born when I was 11. And having her just kind of changed the dynamic in our household to one that was just fuller and richer and just joyous, really. I started high school, secondary school in Nigeria as well. It was a boarding school. And my six years there was junior secondary one to senior secondary three. Mm -hmm. And that six year span, I think, is the equivalent of maybe middle school to high school in America, I think Mm -hmm. I would say. That's like like ages 11 to 16. Yeah. And that was my, I guess, my formative years, you know, um, spent more of my time in school than at home because, you know, it was a boarding school. And so I made friends there that ended up being lifelong friends. You know, those are people, those are my people. That's my crew even now. Yeah. That was pretty much my life growing up in Nigeria. When it comes to faith, I grew up in a Christian household. My family was Christian. And so um, I grew up around God knowing about him and actually Nigeria in general, most 
people are yeah identify, identify as Christians. So um, it wasn't odd, and you know, knowing about God wasn't like a strange thing at all. But developing a personal relationship with Him was something that would have to come from the individual, and that was something that up until that point in my life at sixteen, I had not made any efforts towards making. Mm-hmm. So um, I was just a typical you know Nigerian teenage girl, really. Yeah, at the time, you know that my that was my situation before my life completely changed. Right. I think that translates to a lot of different countries where you grow up. I mean, especially America, especially Southern America, right? Like we grow up around God and our parents are taking us to church, Uh but how much of it is like our decision, right? Like how much of it is ours? And I think the, the lucky ones, we get out from under our parents' umbrella and maybe we go off our own way. That was my story. And then yeah. kind of came back around and was like, okay, wait, I, I do want God. Like I do exactly. want this thing, you know, exactly. <laughs> but that translates. Like I think so many people that are listening have had likely, I mean, there are the ones that welcome Jesus into their heart when they were six and like that was their reality but mine was definitely similar to yours of yeah I went to church with my parents took me to church and then once I got out on my own I realized that that was something that I wanted to yeah like explore your own right right it becomes your own it's not your parents anymore so tell us just a little bit about for people that are unfamiliar you were in a plane crash tell us a little bit about that no problem the accident happened when I was 16 years old, right? So um, I was a senior in high school and my, you know, most pressing thing on my mind at the time was SATs. You know, I was going home for the Christmas holidays with about 60 other students from my high school. And those that were in my grade were all going home to start studying for the SATs. That, that was life. It was a Saturday, December 10th, when the accident happened. That's my birthday. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. So the accident happened on, on a Saturday and I was, like I said, in boarding school. So that, that was the day we were all leaving campus for Christmas holidays. Basically my school does this thing where all the students who live like in the same area, we would board the same plane or the same bus to get home. Mm-hmm. So 61 students lived in the Eastern part of Nigeria. My school was in the North. So we would have to fly home and also fly back together to campus when the semester, when the holidays were over. So at this point, this is a routine flight in my life. You know, it's, it's nothing unusual. Been on this flight a million times and several other flights, like, you know, flying was a part of life. Yeah. So being on the plane that day wasn't strange for any one of us. So we got on the school buses that took us to the airport and then we boarded our plane, regular commercial Boeing jet, nothing strange. There were 109 passengers on board in total, including the flight crew. We took off. Everything was fine. Uneventful flight for the most part. And then I think like maybe about 15 minutes to the landing, like the time to land, the pilot makes the announcement that they usually make about how we're about to start a descent and everything. And so he starts, you know, descending, going through the clouds and the turbulence starts. And at first, it's nothing serious. It's nothing weird. It's just regular turbulence. It happens when you fly. But then eventually it started to get really kind of dramatic and just very exaggerated movements of the plane you know and I remember just sitting there like when my mind started to shift like you know kind of get uncomfortable mm-hmm. and I was kind of like what well, this is like a little more intense than I'm used to and I remember it was just qu- so quiet in the cabin and it's usually quiet it's just this time I could just sense that like there was this tension in the air where no one was saying anything because you know no one wanted to say what clearly on everyone's minds because yeah. this was out of hand 
And then eventually the, there was this scream from the back of the plane, this woman. And that just kind of just caused the chaos to start. There was no running around or anything like that. It was just like the screaming, like people were just screaming and shouting and, you know, screaming blood of Jesus and like just screaming God, you know, praying loudly. Just it was just like panic, you know, and I was just sitting there in my seat. I was in an aisle seat in the front of the plane and I was just staring into space like what is happening? This is unreal. Like this is surreal. Like this is movie stuff right. not happening in real life. And it was just a very weird out of body moment where I could like see myself in my seat, just shell shocked. And I could see like just everyone like panicking in their seats. And one of my closest friends was in the aisle seat next to mine. And the last thing I remember is holding her hand. And, and then this weird metal scraping sound that just kind of jarred the brain. And then just darkness, mm. just complete darkness. Yeah, just just blackness. I don't remember the crash itself, like the impact. I just remember the panic and the chaos. And then I remember the feeling of my friend's cold hand. And then I just remember just blackness, nothing. Yeah. That was my last memory on the plane. And then my next vivid memory after that is five weeks later, I'm opening my eyes and I am in a hospital in South Africa. That's when my life yeah. basically, you know, restarted. Yeah. You lived through a lot of people's worst nightmare that people almost like not joke about, but like, yeah, almost joke. Like, what are the odds? Right. Exactly. It's kind of <laughs> like are the odds. one of the things that like, it's too terrible to even contemplate something like that actually happening. No. Like every time we fly, you know, you know that that's, can you imagine if you just drop out of the sky? But it's like, no, nah, no, nah, it's never going to happen. And you were an experienced flyer. Like, so it wasn't even, you know, you were used, the turbulence didn't throw you off. You were like, this is normal. This is, it happened. This is normal. Do they know how you survived? There was no explanation to why myself, because there were two survivors. Okay. Out of 109 people. And there was really no correlation, like in the, the, re, the reason or why we survived. Like for one thing, most people that died, like they, they died from smoke inhalation as opposed to burns. Yeah. So there was a lot of people that died just from like the smoke of the, the explosion. Right. And of course there were burns too, but like most people, it was the lungs that like, that was what got them. Mm -hmm. And then the other survivor, she didn't have any burns, but she broke like a bone. Like she broke like her arm, I believe. Mm -hmm. And where I blacked out, she didn't, she remembers everything. She was awake throughout. She remembers the crash. She remembers everything, you know? So our experiences were so different. And even the way that we recovered, it was so different because, you know, while I sustained more physical injuries, she sustained way more psychological injuries, you know, yeah. psychological trauma that definitely affected just the way that she moved about her life. Absolutely. It does. Absolutely. I and mean, that was my first thought when you said that all you remembered is black is like, that's almost God's protection. Oh yeah. That he oh, yeah. like protected your mind. So you ended up with severe burn injuries and ended up that led to years of surgery. Correct. Correct. So tell us a little bit about, you know, we were talking earlier about that shift happening where your relationship with God becomes your own. Hmm. Like when along the line, did that happen for you? So this was something that started happening in the midst of my treatment, the first stage of my treatment in South Africa. So um, after the accident happened, I was flown within 24 hours to South Africa, Johannesburg, mm -hmm. which is where they took care of me for the next seven months, gave me emergency treatment, emergency surgeries. 
that was where they saved my life. I had to be flown out of the country because Nigeria did not have the capacity to care yeah. for the level of burns that I had. Third degree burns over 65% of my body. So we didn't have what it takes to take care of that kind of burn. Yeah. So after they got me to South Africa, I was there for seven months. And during that seven month period, that is where most of the significant foundational growth happened in my spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to, you know, just Christianity in general. Yeah. It was something that kind of was born from my mother's faith specifically for a very long time while I was in the hospital, I was very reliant on not just her faith, but her period. Mm -hmm. She was my rock. She was the reason that I was waking up every morning. The reason why I was struggling on to survive, you know, because I wanted to keep seeing her face. So in the beginning, she was really my reason for getting as far as I did for, for literally choosing to stay alive. And then as time passed, her prayers, I knew people were praying for me from all over the world. You know, this became, my life became a sort of like beacon, you know, considering yeah. the life of all the 60 kids that were gone, everyone just felt that, you know, Keshi has to make it, you know, that was the vibe. And I feel like those kind of prayers, those were what sustained me those days. And, you know, I knew this, you know, I knew that I knew there was power in, in that, but, you know, it also made me kind of like feel like I didn't need to do, I didn't need to make any effort on my own either, because my mom's got this, you know, my family's got this, people are praying for me. I, I don't need to worry about having something specific with God when everyone else was like, you know, interceding for me. Yeah. This was like the case for the next like three, four months. It took me a while to get to the place where it was like, I'm going to have to get some kind of like direct access, you know, to this God as opposed to. Right. <laughs> I need my own access. That was born specifically from the trauma of the injuries, the physical trauma and how difficult it was to deal with those things. Like after the pain, which was obviously terrible, the itching that comes with the burn injuries healing was the worst of it for me. It was just the worst, insane kind of experience. And, and for me, like it was so bad that like, I would take the pain like double, triple over any itching. You know, it was just yeah. it was something that just took over the mind. It was crazy. And I remember just not being able to sleep. Oh my gosh. Not having any peace, just not. And that's just like not a way to live. I always tell people sleep deprivation is a torture tactic. Honestly. Like they use it to torture people. So of course you're not just like floating through not getting any sleep. It sucks, you know, and especially in a place where the body needs it. Right. There was never a more important time for me to sleep and recover than that moment, you know, mm -hmm. those, those, that period of time. And I wasn't getting any of it. And it was just like exhaustion compounded upon exhaustion every day. And, you know, when my mom was around, you know, it was, it was good because I had distractions, you know, but mm -hmm. you couldn't be there forever. You know, she couldn't be there overnight at least not at the start. So, you know, it just became this thing where it was like, how are we going to, because, you know, when she's here and she's praying for me and she's reading the Bible to me, I just feel this like a resting place, kind of like, I feel like a little relief. I feel like my mind is being taken to a more peaceful, like relaxing place. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't getting that when I was by myself. And I, I, I just got to a place where I was like, I, I need to get that. I need to find a way to be okay yeah. on my own as well. Prayer is the way it's going to be then cool. And that was not something that just came from my mind. That was my mom. You know, she, people had been telling me this obviously over for months. I had been having dreams where literally 
God was telling me that I need to start fending for myself spiritually. Like it was things like this that were happening. And of course, you know, I would, I would doubt, I would read, I would be like, I'm reading too much into this situation. You know, I'm reading too much into this dream or whatever it is I'm having here. Like, why would he say that? You know, why would he, you know, get me in a dream just to like chastise me? You know, like I've gone through enough. I just felt like (laughs) ignoring the obvious, you know, after a while, you know? And so my grandma, my mom, my dad, everyone just kind of told, you know, it just became where we're just like, okay, can't you like, at this point, you have nothing to lose. <laughs> so you might as well try, you know, right. just try and act, just see if you can access what everyone else seems to be able to access quite easily, at least on your behalf. Like mm-hmm. see if there's anything that you can do for yourself, see if there's power here. Yeah. That was what it was. It was kind of like almost a let him prove himself to me kind of feeling. I feel like in that crossroads, people typically go one way or the other, right? You could have gone the direction of, if God's so good, why did he let this happen? Oh, yeah. Now I don't want anything to do with. And I'm sure you did. But oh, yeah. like, oh, yeah. But that could have <laughs> been where you. But I couldn't, I didn't want to say it exactly. Exactly. There's a difference. It is. I think God's okay with our hard questions mm-hmm. and, and our struggles. But is that what becomes like your gospel or. Does his goodness and his faithfulness, even through the crappy stuff, become like your battle song? Yeah. Okay, so speaking of song, then you end up on America's Got Talent. I need, yeah. I need to know how we end up there. <laughs> oh my gosh! So wow! So from South Africa to AGT, that's like 12, 13 years different. So a whole lot of life, yeah. Whole different, you know. So independent, so much better physically. At that point, actually, I was no longer having surgeries, like none that were necessary. You know, yeah. I wasn't having, at this point, it was mostly like reconstructive surgery that was more aesthetic. Yeah. So like things that would improve appearance as yeah. opposed to life-saving. Go, exactly. I did the life-saving stuff in South Africa. Then I came to America and then they did the reconstructive stuff that gave me back my independence, like my practical move, Yeah. being able to do things for myself. So that, that phase of my life had... Yes, yeah, so you're kind of out of survival. Exa- exactly. We're yeah. now just living, you know? I'm super excited to announce that this August, we are firing back up our monthly membership called The Collective. The Collective is a community membership empowering you to navigate real life from a biblical perspective. I love this community and the up-close access it gives us to one another. We cover a quarterly topic with monthly calls and we all grow and learn together and it's just really awesome. You can learn more and get on the wait list at crappychristianco.com slash collective. Okay, so I personally love having my nails done. It makes me feel cute. It makes me feel put together. But what I do not have the patience for is sitting in a salon for an hour for a $50 manicure which is why I am very thankful to have found Red Aspen's Nail Dashes. They are $13 glue-on manicures that can last anywhere from five to eight days. They have tons of cute colors and patterns, so you can take back your time and your money and still have cute nails. So just head to redaspenlove.com slash crappychristian or visit the link in the show notes. Okay, let's get back to the show. And so um, I had graduated from college in 2015 from undergrad. And now a year after working nonprofit, I started my MBA in 2016. And that was the year that America's Got Talent came into my life. So how this happened? 
I did not sign up for the show myself. One of my best friends signed me up without telling me. <laughs> she was frustrated with me. She had been telling me, and funny enough, my dad too, for years to sign up for one of these music shows. You know, mm-hmm. they knew that I loved singing. They knew how much it meant to me and how, and they felt like my voice was good enough for things like that. But I did not, you know, I, I loved singing. Don't get me wrong. I, I mean, it's something that I loved before the accident and mm-hmm. became even more of a love after when it became part of my therapy, when it became clear that like music would be something that could be part of what heals me, you know? Yeah. And um, my voice actually changed after the accident too. Like, you know, like can't explain, but it just got better for sure. After wow. the difference, like clear difference. Yeah. So having that, you know, was very comforting and, you know, confident boosting as well. But, you know, does it mean I'm going to go on a music show? Like, no. (laughs) Lots of people know how to sing. Okay. Like, like a burn survivor. I feel like I hadn't seen enough of me on TV to like be convinced that, you know, even if my voice was good, why would they put me on TV? You know, it was just like, eh, there's really very slim chances here. So I'm just going to focus on school and see what I can do with that route. So when my friend did that, you know, I did have a moment where it was like catchy, you know, you're going to have to decide if you, you know, there were points where it was like, I can decide not to follow through, you know? Yeah. But like, you know, when she did that, I was like, okay, cool. Let's just see what happens. Time, like two months passed and nothing happened. And I really literally forgot about it. Cause it was like, I didn't put any stakes on this, you know? Right. So it wouldn't, there was no feeling yet with how it went. Yeah. But then they reached out to me in November. So she, she applied in September. 2016, November 2016 was when I got the first phone call from America's Got Talent. It was from a woman. Her name was Destiny. She was a talent scout for the show. And she talks about how she saw my application. And I remember I was really groggy because the phone call actually woke me up. It was a Saturday morning, very <laughs> early. And I remember just kind of like nodding through her con- the conversation and then I went back to bed. <laughs> and then like two hours after that, when I actually woke up, like with my alarm, I was like, I'm, I feel like something very- What just happened? <laughs> In the, like so at some point this morning so I call the number back and she goes on again to talk about America's Got Talent I'm like oh my god they actually reached out to me this is crazy so then my friend calls me like a few like hours after that phone call yelling about how she just got an email from America's Got Talent talking about how they just talked to me that what is going on so basically in the application she actually put in her email because if they rejected me, she didn't want me to even like see anything, you know? So she, yeah. she literally thought about every step. Wow. So that was basically how AGT came into my life. You know, when I told my parents, they were just like, this is great. Like, so how, I mean, how are we feeling about this? You know, I, I was just like, I don't know how far it's going to go. So, you know, how serious they are, you know, they get thousands of applicants, thousands of people they probably reach out to. So let's just go along with them and just you know, not put too much into it and just keep going into what happens. Yeah. If they're serious and they'll keep, you know, they'll stay on it. Yeah. And they just kept calling. They just kept emailing. They kept, and then we got to flights and it was like, this is for real. Like they're flying me to it. Like they actually want me there. And I think up until the moment of the like audition, I still did not believe that I would actually step on that. Stage. <laughs> until I was literally on that X in front of Simon and Howie and everybody there. You know, it was just dude surreal. It was a surreal experience, honestly. Like till today when I think about it, I'm just like, I get goose flesh because I'm like, did that happen? That actually happened. <laughs> yeah. That actually happened. Wait. So then, I mean, spoiler alert, you end up getting the golden buzzer. I know that what was, the heck? you know, for someone who didn't even plan to be on the show, 
that was like the most shocking, the most honestly validating thing, especially who we came from, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We all know how he can be. And then he just obviously has proven to the world how well he knows about music and has that ear. So to get that from him was just like, wow, like, you know, this is not like my family or someone right. I feel good about myself. You know, this is someone who doesn't have any problem telling kids uh, they suck. You know, he right. doesn't care, <laughs> you know, so he had no reason to do me any favors. And so for me, it, it meant, that meant even more to me to hear that from him, that he thought my voice was good enough to actually be deserving of that kind of honor. It really changed my life and also changed my perspective on my voice. You know, mm -hmm. the show gave me so much more confidence in my sound and just allowed me to kind of explore the possibility of, you know, music. Yeah. Yeah. What can maybe doing something with my life, you know, with respect to music. And um, really that's what the show did in general, actually. It just gave me this platform to explore other paths mm -hmm. that I just always felt were kind of closed off, you know, to me. It was really a great experience and life-changing too. Have you had the experience of kind of getting feedback from people, what it was like as maybe burn survivors to see themselves on television? Oh, yeah. That you're sitting here saying, I didn't even think they would pick me up because I, I hadn't seen enough of myself in that environment. And then you got to like forge that path and do it. That's, I think for me, the, the most rewarding part of this is knowing what it means to someone who looks like me to see someone like me on TV, mm -hmm. you know, not because they want to be on TV too, but because it normalizes it so 100%. much more than anything else. And, you know, burn survivors, we go through hospitals and, and we meet lots of people who have treated a lot of burn survivors. And so they know that, you know, there is life after all this, you know, mm -hmm. and hearing that from them is great. But like when you see it, you know, being lived by an actual burn survivor, it's a whole different kind of, like, I remember the first time I saw burn survivors that were not patients, you know, it was yeah. life-changing. This was in 2009. I had been a patient at Shriners here in America for two years. And I went to a burn event. It was like a world burn Congress. That's what it was. And the first one was in Galveston, which is where we lived and we attended. And for the first time I was exposed to a world where there were burn survivors who were like no longer having surgeries no longer going in and out of the hospital living and they were just like living they were married they had kids they had regular jobs and it was like oh so it's not just like hospitals for oh so it's not like patient burns patient forever right at some point we're just people and these are just people and they're just living and it was just it it was a huge perspective shift for me because yeah. then I started to think outside of my box and started to kind of it reminded me that there is a few, there is something to look forward to. There's life after this trauma that we've gone through. Yeah. But you know, when you're in that trauma, it's so hard. And it, does, it doesn't only apply to burn survivors. You know, any situation you're in, when you're inside it, it's so hard to see anything from the outside. You know, it's so hard to, hard to gain perspective. So when you do, it's life-changing. And so I wanted that experience for other burn survivors. I wanted them to see me, not just like having, like, you know, you go out there and you have only burn-related jobs or or like, you know, regular, just normal jobs, which are great too. But like, even as far as wanting to be on TV, right? wanting to do something that would put you like in the limelight or in the spotlight, you know, even as far as wanting to speak for a living or anything, you can, you know, mm -hmm. these burns, these injuries, they don't have to stop you from 
you don't have to change your dreams and your passions, you know, from, um, you know, really big and public ones, to like smaller private ones. Yeah. It burns. And so I felt like that was like the message that a really strong message that would become even stronger from a source like me. So mm-hmm. I really took that to heart and um, I really wanted to become like a serious advocate for burn survivors when it comes to showing them in a very real way, like a, a life, like just the way that I'm living my life, showing them that there is, this is what it means to survive and to thrive yeah. basically, you know, so so unrelated, but for the longest time, the like unofficial tagline of the show has been, I get to talk to people who have walked through the fire and came back with buckets of water for the people who are still in it. Oh, wow. Which is beautiful. But like you said, that applies that. I think that's one of the enemy's favorite lies to tell us is when we're in the midst, mm. this is forever. Or even if you do get out, you're not going to have any kind of quality of life. Exactly. You know, there, there is no, your future is going to be keeping your head above water. Yes. You know, and that surviving, you know, surviving no. exactly. That thriving is not, is no longer on the table for you. And exactly. I think that that can apply to something that you can see physically, like being a burn survivor or in the things that people can't see. I talk really openly about, I've had an anxiety disorder that's disabled me since I was seven. Part of getting out there and having a podcast and doing the things is like, you can do hard, scary things, even if they're, you know, everybody has, and, and you talk about this, like a burden to bear. You talk about in your book, which we have not even touched on more than my scars, you know, a wonderful book that's out. But one of the things at the end of the book is that, you know, you believe the plane crash was your burden to bear and you, but you've made that such a beautiful thing, like bearing that burden for others and showing them that life is possible and how good God is. And what is your like main, I love asking writers this because I have a book coming out at the end of the year and I don't, I don't know how I would answer this question. So I like to ask (laughs) other people, but like what, if readers could walk away with like one thing, from reading more than my scars, what do you think that would be? I think for me, it's important for people to see that nothing good, nothing like long-term sustainable and good is achieved overnight. Mm. I want them to see that all these qualities that go beyond the physical that are so much more valuable, they take time to cultivate. They take time to, to grow, to, you have to keep practicing them to Mm -hmm. expand them. And I think we all have the ability to do those things. Absolutely. And it happens through life experiences. So I feel like I want people to know that, you know, this person that they, they know, like you know, a lot of people that follow me, they see, they just automatically saw this, you know, confident and right. self-assured looking person, but like none of those things, I'm, I'm not this way naturally. There is a level of, you know, predisposition how you are you know you know how because we're all individuals there is a level of uniqueness to like the way that you turn out but like at the end of the day most of us have to go through processes to become who we are today you know Mm -hmm. and so the point of the book I wanted people to see that I had to earn and fight tooth and nail through every step to get to a place where I can confidently say I'm a Christian to get to a place where I can confidently raise my head high wherever I go and walk in my truth and be authentic and to just be myself. Yeah. Despite what happened to me. So I want people to see that 
the way the way that life is is that you need to go through things experience things in order to get anything that's valuable mm-hmm. I feel like I really want to show I want to tell them that and I want to show them through my life mm-hmm. through the book that it is possible and that we're all relatable right you don't have to go through something as huge as a plane crash or dramatic or have scars as obvious as mine for your trauma and for your pains to be valid you know mm-hmm. people have invisible scars that oftentimes bear much more like long lasting effects on the person you know mm-hmm. i feel like i wanted to represent every kind of trauma i want people to read and feel like they can relate to my struggles and despite it being a plane crash like i still went through the same exact process and struggles to become my own person just like anyone else yeah i think for me that's the main thing the relatability i want to show that i think i want to show that my own personal greedy process of getting to the person i am today yeah let them know that it's hard but it's possible and that nothing nice and good is like most likely most good things are, they have to be earned. Oh my gosh. Well, I think social media perpetuates that issue, right? Like people can look at where you are now and want to be there, but they're Uh 16 years behind you. Like they're just walking through the trauma. They're just walking through the fire and they think that they should be on the other side and be, and I'm guilty of that too. You know, me too. We all look at all the people and, you know, it's a comparison, you know, it's just everyone's life is out there, but people typically just put the good stuff, you know, and we just forget that like, there's so much happening behind the success that you perceive, even if the success is real, because a lot of times people manufacture an image online, Mm -hmm. you know, that you aspire to, that's not even real. Yeah, they're not even doing it. (laughs) But then the ones who are and show their success, like there is, there are years of struggle and trial that is like in the background behind the scenes that is not being put on social media. Some people do put it there. I'm one of the people that definitely tries to show both good and bad. But even that there's a balance, right? Like something has to be sacred. I can't put every bad, hard thing that happens on the internet. You can't just look at something and think this person's life is great. Like there's, there's no one that's like that. No No one has not gone through stuff like, you know, so but social media, because of just the fact that it's just in our faces, you know, and mm-hmm. it's only that good stuff. And it's from everyone around the world. It's just like, there's no way you won't start feeling kind of inadequate, you know, and it's, it's definitely a, a constant battle, I would say, even for and anyone, I think, doesn't matter what kind of position you are, or where you live, there's always going to be something that looks like greener grass somewhere, yes. you know, it's just crazy. It's just, it's human nature. So we just, it's a, I think it's an everyday battle really to remind yourself that our journeys are all different. Yeah. And I think it's up to you to have the discernment, you know, to, are you comparing your beginning to somebody's middle or end? Right. That's true. Can I, I, can I just use social media to learn and not compare? Like that's been a huge journey for me in the last three years has been, I'm going to use it to share the message that God's given me and to learn from people that I feel like are worth learning from. Right. Otherwise, like I'm going to live my life off of my phone True. more than on it. And it's hard because we live in such a like microwave world yes. where everything's on your phone and immediate. Where can people like find and follow you online where they can, where can they listen to your music? I know they can get your book wherever they get books. Yes, yes, yes. You can find me online on pretty much every social media platform. I am on Instagram as Catchy Official, on Facebook as Catchy, just Official Catchy. I'm on Twitter, same thing, just Catchy. And um, I'm on TikTok, Catchy. Like basically 
anywhere you see my name (laughs) with a check mark on it, then that's me. Okay. Perfect. And then I have a website. It's called catchyofficial.com. And through that website, you can access everything that I have going on, basically from my newsletters to my book, where you can get my book, which is everywhere, like you said. And my music is also on there on my website as well. But it's also, if you just search my name, you find me on iTunes and Apple Music on Spotify. Yeah, I have new music actually coming out in like four days, I think. Oh my God. Like I'm a whole album. So I'm very excited about that as well. So there's going to be even more to find in the next few days. So you did book launch and new music launch. You're like, we are doing it. (laughs) I'm just trying to do every, like have fun and do everything that I'm passionate about, you know, and see what, you know, just see how far I can go with these things. You know, I encourage people to do the same too, because it's only one life guys, you know, so. Amen. I love it. This was such a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. I had a great time too. Really, really cool. Very chill. I like the vibe of the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the crappy Christian podcast. And Hey, by the way, if you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right. See you next week. At LensCrafters, we value expertly tailored eye care, provide state-of-the-art eye exams, offer a wide assortment of designer brands and high-quality lenses, because everything we do at LensCrafters is for every site that makes your life special. We offer 50% off lenses with frame purchase. Shop in-store and online. Book your annual eye exam now on LensCrafters.com. LensCrafters, because sight. Eye exams are available at the Independent Doctor of Optometry at or next to LensCrafters. Doctors in some states are employed by LensCrafters. Offer valid to April 2nd, 2023. See associate for details.